Time's the charm. So last week we tried to show this video, and when we practiced it before the service started, it worked. And then when the service started, it didn't. And this week I said, hey, since we didn't get to see it last week, let's do it this week. And it worked when we practiced it before the service, and it didn't this time. So I guess we won't show it. Uh, thank you, John. I will remember this day when you turn 60. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I can't publicly be mad at her. Uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad we're all here together. Good to be here. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll begin today. Uh, dearly Father, Lord, you're so good. And uh, Lord, we're just so thankful that we can come before you today, Lord, that we can read your word, that your word brings us comfort in times of hardship, joy in the midst of sorrow. And Lord, as we open your word and read it today, I pray that it will challenge us and that we'll be challenged to conform to your likeness, to be more and more like you and to live more and more like you. Speak through your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever known you're about to walk through something really difficult? On the horizon, you you see it coming. You know what's ahead. Maybe you're you're getting prepared to start a new school and you're you're really nervous about what that would be like. Or or you're getting ready to start a new job. Or maybe at your work you have a really difficult task that's that's coming ahead and you know it's gonna be really difficult. Or maybe you're you're getting ready to start chemo or something extremely difficult. What would it be like if you were going through a hardship and you were facing something that was coming up ahead and you had a specific letter written by Jesus to you to comfort you and tell you what is coming? Well, we're going to look at a letter just like that today. We're going through the seven letters to the seven churches and Revelation. Uh, Last week we looked at the church of Ephesus. Today we're going to look at the church of of Smyrna. Now, before we do that, I want to look at a map here so you can kind of see. Um, now, Smyrna was a very important city. It was it kind of jockeyed for position with Ephesus as one of the most important cities there in Asia Minor. In the time of the writing of Revelation, it was a very affluent city, a very rich city. Um, estimates of around 100,000 to 200,000 people in that city, which for us we might say that's not very big, but in that day that was a very large city. Around 1,000 B.C. it was established. Um, it was the birthplace of Homer, so Homer's Iliad. And then um, around 600 it was destroyed, but around 290 it was rebuilt. And it was one of the most loyal uh, places to Rome. And it was its strong ties to Rome is, is often what led it to be very antagonistic towards Christians. And in 195 A.D. it became the first city to build a temple in all the Roman Empire to uh, Dea Roma. According to Tacitus, in 23 B.C., They won permission over ten other Asian cities to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It was a very influential city. It was called the Crown Jewel. Uh, Coins from that time described Smyrna as the first of Asia in beauty and size. It was this beautiful city. And so, but because of the ties to Rome, there's some hardships that are coming to Christians. So, So Jesus writes to the Christians in the midst of their hardship. 
And typically our pattern here at North Park is uh, after the music, we usually stay standing as we um, do the memory verse in honor of God's word. But during this series, we're, we're not doing a memory verse, but each week um, during this series, we're going to ask you to stand as we read from Revelation, the letter to the church of Jesus, just to think about the, uh, uh, just about the gravity that Jesus is writing this letter to the church of Smyrna. So if you are physically able, if you'd stand as we read uh, Revelation 2, Verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So the letter starts off with, to the angel in the church in Smyrna writes. Now the word... Angelos can mean angel, it can mean messenger, it can mean pastor. Most likely, these are, are letters that are written to a messenger that are, that are passed on to these churches. It says, these are the words of him. So this is saying, these are Christ's words. Now, with each of these letters, we'll see uh, this kind of common, um, common breakdown. If you go to the next slide, we'll see first... There's a Christ title. This is taken from Jeff, Jeffrey Wyma's commentary. Then, then there's a commendation. Then there's a complaint. Uh, now, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches that don't have a complaint. And then there's a, a correction, something, some required action that they have to do because of the complaint uh, for the other five letters. And then there's a consequence, be it positive or negative. So with each letter, Christ introduces himself with a title that directly relates to what they're going to. So if you can go to the next slide, we see he claims to be the first and the last. Now, some scholars will look at that and say, right on the coins in Smyrna, it says about the city that this was the the first city. Uh, Thought of as the greatest city there in Asia. But but I really think that that's not what uh, Jesus is appealing to. More likely, the primary, primary thing that Jesus is communicating with this is that it seems like one of the major persecutions that's happening is there are, are religious Jews who are accusing the Christians and are trying to get the Christians in trouble. And these religious Jews would be fervent for their faith and, and they believed the scriptures. And so Jesus is saying, look, to those Jews, I am God. He's quoting Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no God. Isaiah 48:12. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first and the last. And we see Jesus do this at the very beginning of Revelation and at the very end. And here, as he's talking to this church in Smyrna that's experiencing this tremendous persecution, he says, look, I am the true God. I am the first and the last. And this is important, because when we think of God as sovereign over eternity past, 
over our present, over eternity, future. That means that nothing that they're about to face is outside of His control. The same God who was with that first generation of Israelites. The, the, the same God who made the promises to Abraham. The same God who was faithful to Isaac and Jacob. Who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. That same God, the first and the last, was there with the Christians in Smyrna. No matter what they faced. No matter what was ahead. He was there. And he says, not only am I the first and the last, but I am the one who died and came to life. Now again, scholars will will look at the the city of Smyrna, and there was this common theme because in 600 they had been destroyed, and in 290 they had been restored. And so some people talked about the city dying and coming back to life. But I think, again, I think the primary thing is he's communicating to the Christians in in Smyrna, look, some of you are going to die. We see Smyrna experience tremendous persecution. We have, we have examples through history of, of people being martyred in Smyrna. Jesus is going to warn that what's coming ahead is going to be imprisonment and even death. In the words of one of the commentators, he said, Jesus is basically saying, been there, done that. So I came, I died, and then I was resurrected. So when you face death, when you, when you approach this difficult time that has come, remember you serve a God who not only died, but came back to life. We don't serve a God who is distant, who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, who doesn't understand what we're going through. We serve a God who, who came down to this earth. And He suffered. And He was mocked. And He was slandered, just like the church in Smyrna. And ultimately He died. He experienced everything that we would experience, and yet he was victorious over death. And so as he introduces himself to Smyrna, he says, look, I'm sovereign over all things, but not only am I sovereign over all things, I know what you're about to walk through because I did it myself. So have no fear. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know. What a great statement. As we face whatever thing we're going to walk through as we get ready to prepare to walk through hardship as we suffer miscarriages and struggles lose loved ones lose a job we we can know that 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 god is the god as we looked at a couple weeks who walks among the lampstands who walks among us who who knows us jesus says i know your afflictions i'm not distant I'm not unaware. I know your afflictions. And much like last week, I think in the Greek here, what's happening is is he's going to say afflictions in general, and then he's going to go through and look at three different types of afflictions. I know your afflictions. And we're going to see that their afflictions were poverty, they were being slandered, and they were experiencing persecution, which would eventually lead to death as well. So he says, "I, I know your afflictions. Now, this was a, a common experience in the early church. In Hebrews 10, it says, Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult. Jesus had experienced that. And persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. 
and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. So these believers were being imprisoned, they were being insulted, and they were even having their own property, their, their land, their, their materials taken because of their faith. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They had something better than the house that can be taken or their possessions that could be taken. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. So this church in Smyrna was facing these tremendous hardships, but so had Jesus. So they're to take heart. Now the first hardship mentioned is their poverty. Now, poverty isn't mentioned in any of the other six churches, so this is something unique happening in Smyrna. Now, they, they go through all these different potential causes of this poverty. I think three are probable. The third one that I'm going to mention is probably the most likely. But they could have had property, goods confiscated, just like the church there mentioned in Hebrews, or stolen because of their faith. Uh, some in the church were imprisoned and martyred. So potentially if you imagine uh, that your husband is imprisoned or your husband is martyred, now imagine the financial hardship that would come on your family because of that. The primary breadwinner um, no longer has the ability to earn income. But more than likely, um, the most probable of all these is that Smyrna was just notoriously uh, loyal to Rome. And because of that royalty, most workers belong to guilds, uh, similar to what we think of as, as unions, and membership in those guilds required that they would offer these uh, relig- pagan, participate in these pagan religious ceremonies. Um, and it's likely that Christians would have refused to do that. And on top of that, uh, pagans didn't want to be associated with Christians. Um, and Jews, which we'll talk about in a minute, didn't want to be associated with Christians. So if I'm going shopping and I'm walking down in the market... And I know this guy who sells uh, blankets, he makes blankets, um, he's a Christian. And this other guy who sells and makes blankets is not, and he's a known Christian, I'm going to buy from that guy. If I'm, I mean, I'm not talking about me personally, but a person back in that time that's not a Christian, they're going to uh, avoid being put in with that group. So whatever the case, whatever caused this poverty, what we know is that it was unique to the Christians in Smyrna. Smyrna was a very affluent city, very rich, very financially blessed, and yet these Christians are facing tremendous financial hardship. But Jesus says something interesting. But you're rich. Now, now, in a few weeks we're going to look at the church in Laodicea. Now, the church in Laodicea was, was very rich. And Jesus is going to tell them, even though you're rich, really, you're poor. As everybody else looks at your riches, it's ironic because you're actually poor. And here to the church in Smyrna, he says everybody else is going to say you're destitute, you're poor, but in reality, you're rich because your riches are spiritual riches. So would you rather be financially poor and spiritually rich or would you rather be financially rich and spiritually poor? For those of us in America, that's a good question to ask. Could you, if God gave, if someone gave you the option, tomorrow you can be Jeff Bezos and you can have a billion, billions of dollars. You do whatever you want, but you lose Jesus. What would you say? Are you pursuing the wealth that fades? Or are you pursuing spiritual riches? So 
So their first affliction is poverty. Their second affliction is slander. Now, none of us want to be slandered. I mean, that's when you're, especially when you're in middle school, high school, elementary, one of the worst things that can happen is when, when other kids tease you. I still remember some of those mean things that kids say from elementary school. You don't want to be slandered. But these Christians, one of the primary things that was happening is uh, Jews were slandering them. Now, we see this throughout the history. Um, a little context. So um, when Rome takes over, they, they, during this time, they wanted everybody to worship the emperor. They saw the emperor as God and worship all their gods. But Judaism had been a long-standing religion, and they had made an exemption for the Jews to basically say, you don't have to worship the emperor. Um, as long as you don't cause a ruckus, like that's fine. You can go on do your own thing. Well, Christianity comes about, and it seem, it's seen initially as a sect of Judaism because it's, it's an offshoot of Judaism. But the Jews in, in, in AD 70 uh, revolted. There was a Judean revolt that was squashed, and the temple was destroyed, and and that kind of put the Jews in kind of a precarious and tumultuous situation with Rome. And so they didn't, they didn't want to lose their status and then have to also be uh, forced to worship the emperor. So in many places, especially in Smyrna, the Jews would, would tell on the Christians and, and make accusations about Christians because they didn't want to be associated with the Christians, that they didn't want to lose the status that they had and the freedom that they had with their religion. So they would make these, these different charges about Christians. What, what, what kind of slander would they say about Christians? Well, they would call Christians cannibals. Why? Well, because Christians participate in communion. And we say, you know, we eat, eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. Well, that's a cannibal. I don't understand this is a figurative language. They accused the Christians of incest because we talked about loving your brother and sister and greeting each other with a, a brotherly kiss. They accused uh, the Christians and the Romans accused the Christians of atheism because they wouldn't worship all the idols, so they say, oh, they're, they're atheists. And they accused the Christians of treason. And the Christians will be thought of as uh, loyalty of the kingdom of Christ over the kingdom of Rome. Now, in the Scriptures, we, we see uh, these uh, Jewish religious people going against the Christians. Acts 13, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When Paul, or when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. In Acts 14, while Paul and Barnabas were in Iconium, they went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. And then we see them work together to plan to stone Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 18, when they were in Corinth, they opposed Paul and were abusive. So we see uh, the Jews slandering Christians. And we know from history that Jews brought official charges against individuals before the political leaders of the city. In 155 AD, the Jews brought Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, before a Roman council. And we'll, we'll talk about this later. But Romans actually had these people called delatores that were basically spies to figure out who were the Christians so they could prosecute them. Now back to Revelation 2. It says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and not. Now, these are people that are, from their hereditary, they're Jews, 
They practiced uh, Judaism and their religion, but Jesus said that they say they are Jews, but they are not. Because he teaches that a true Jew would not reject Christ. In Romans 2, uh, Paul says a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And then later in Romans 11, he talks about how Gentiles are grafted into the nation of Israel. In Philippians 3.3, 3, he talks about Christians as being those who serve God in, his, in their spirit. In Galatians 3, he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So everybody who has faith, has been grafted into this family of Israel. We're all, I mean, you remember this song when you were a kid, growing up, Father Abraham has many sons, and I'm not, you know, and I don't know why Father Abraham marched, um, but, but that's how we praise the Lord. But the point of that was, was anybody who has put their faith and trust in Christ is a, is a descendant of Abraham. It says that Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed by you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Skipping ahead to verse 26. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. And he makes similar arguments in chapters 4 and chapter 6. So what Jesus is saying is, they claim to be Jews. And if you look at their, their, their genealogy, they're Jewish. But in reality, they're not. Now he goes further to say that they are part of the synagogue of Satan. Now Satan was working to influence Judaism to work against these Christians, but I want to take an aside for a moment and just say some groups in the history of Christianity have taken this as a license to persecute and uh, persecute Jews and to participate in anti-Semitism, and that is not what the Scripture is saying. And they're right now they're right-wing um, uh, uh, white supremacists that use this verse to argue and say uh, that Judaism is a religion of Satanism and stuff. And that's not what Jesus is communicating. Those that claim to be followers of Jesus and speak badly of Jews and discriminate against Jews are going completely against the Scriptures. That is not what Jesus is saying. The Bible definitely doesn't promote anti-Semitism. God chose the nation of Israel as His people. Every book in the Bible was written by a Jewish person outside of Luke and Acts, which was written by Luke, a Gentile. Jesus himself was a Jew. All of the disciples were Jews. And God has an eternal plan for the nation of Israel, which is outlined in the book of Revelation. So just make sure we take it aside to say Jesus is not making an anti-Semitic statement here. What he's saying is that in Smyrna, Satan was using... The, the, the religious Jews to accomplish 
what he thought were his purposes to try and get Christians thrown into jail, to try and get them prosecuted and murdered. So Satan was working in the midst of this religion. So he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So the first affliction is poverty. Their second affliction is slander. The third <coughs> affliction is going to be persecution. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. So our, our minds, we think of, of being thrown in prison. We, we have the, the view of you know, going to Ionia and seeing all the gates and stuff. But, but these would have been uh, dark, dingy rooms um, without bathrooms. So you imagine all the stuff that's in there, rats, all that kind of, just horrible place. But in the Roman Empire, they were, they were fiscally responsible. So they recognized that to incarcerate someone for a long period of time was quite costly. So what they would do is they put people in prison for very short stays. Now, if you were a, a Roman citizen, uh, you had probably the potential to either be exiled um, or, or pay a fine. If you weren't a Roman citizen, it was more than likely you would be declared guilty um, or not guilty. And if you were guilty, often the punishment would be execution because it's way cheaper than putting people in prison for long periods of time. So he says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer for 10 days. Now, in Revelation, we have a lot of um, uh, going back to the book of Daniel. If you remember the book of Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, they're, they're sent into Babylon and they're asked to eat this food that potentially could have been sacrificed to idols. And they say, uh, we want to do something different. We want to eat some, some greens and some water instead of the wine. And uh, why don't we do a test for the next 10 days? Um, you test, and after those 10 days, see who looks better. The, the people that are drinking that stuff, eating that stuff, or the people that are eating this stuff. And they find out that, uh, that it's actually better. Daniel looks better, and they tell everybody, hey, you don't get that steak anymore. You have to eat salad. And everybody's mad at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the point was, they faced this, this thing, and they stood firm for this short period of time, and then they were rewarded for it. And Jesus is saying, look, you're going to suffer persecution for, for 10 days for this short period of time. But, but there's a result that is, that is coming. And so he challenges them. Well, first off, before I get to this next one, just, just point out, uh, before he says, I tell you, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You're going to suffer persecution. Some of you are going to die, but don't be afraid. Now, how could they not have fear when they're facing imminent persecution? Well, because they could have eternity in mind. It's just 10 days. The suffering is, is temporary. You know, when we walk through our life, I mean, I, I just turned 40, as they mentioned. You know, and sometimes some of those difficulties have been just so hard but then the grand scheme of things compared to 40 years, it doesn't seem like that much. But if I had 80 years of tremendous suffering, that's not comparable, Paul says in Romans, to what awaits us in eternity. So don't be afraid. So don't be afraid. And second, be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's 
crown. They were encouraged to be faithful even to the point of death. And we have a historical account. We have historical accounts of what that looked like. And uh, persecution first started really coming to Christians at a, at a really deep level under Nero from the emperor of Rome. And Nero ruled from 54 to 68 AD. And after the fire in 64 AD in Rome, he blamed it on the Christians and he used it as a, a way to really catapult his persecution of Christians. And it was, it was severely intense. Uh, the historian Tacitus describes these atrocities. Covered with skins of beasts, Christians were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight expired. History tells that Nero, when he would have his garden parties, would, would use Christians as basically the, the lanterns to keep his garden, uh, to keep light, just to show how bad it was. Use them as torches. Now, in 111 A.D., we have a letter from Pliny the Younger, uh, who was the governor of Bithynia, which would have been north of Smyrna. So this is, you know, a little bit less than 20 years after Revelation was written. And he writes this. Uh, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. Now, he's, he's writing to say, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right procedure? Is this how I should treat Christians? He says, I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. And those who persisted, I ordered executed. So in other words, had a trial. If they said, nope, I'm not a Christian, okay, we're going to move on. If they said, yes, I'm a Christian, all right, I'm going to threaten you, come back a second time. You still say you're a Christian? Yep, I do. Okay, threaten you, come back a third time. You still say you're a Christian? Okay, execute it. And so he just killed Christians if they wouldn't refute. He said, soon accusations spread, as usually happen, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. So people were ratting out who the Christians were, anonymously. This is who the Christians were. Those that denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods and words dictated by me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the statues of the gods and moreover cursed Christ. None of those who are really Christians said can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. So in other words, he'd bring people before them and he'd say, are you a Christian? And if they said, no, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, and they denied Christ, they'd say, okay, here's what you got to do. You have to make offerings to Caesar. You have to confess that he's Lord. You have to drink this wine. You basically have to worship Caesar. And if you worship Caesar, then I will pardon you and say you're fine. But if you don't, if you continue to say, I won't worship Caesar and I'm going to follow Jesus, then you'll be persecuted. And so it just kind of, the letter kind of continues and basically said that the, he lets those that worship your image and the statues of the gods and curse Christ live, and those that wouldn't do that, he executed. And Emperor Trajan, who this was written to, basically says, good job. <laughs> good job. And I warns that if you just let accusations fly free, there's some things that might happen. But he says, yep, you're following the right protocol. Basically, if they won't worship me, kill them. Now, about 60 years after Revelation was written, uh, there was extreme persecution happening in Smyrna, this, where this letter was, was written. 
And Christians were told they needed to deny Christ, confess Caesar as Lord, and offer incense to the incense to the emperor. If they didn't, they'd be thrown to wild animals in the arena or burned at the stake or other modes of torture. And in AD 157, we have the, the, um, we have the account of Polycarp, uh, who was the bishop of Smyrna at that time. He was one of John's disciples, uh, John the Apostle, and uh, he was 86 years old when this happened. And they tried to get him recant. And he said, Phil paraphrase, um, he said, basically, uh, I've served the Lord these 80 and 6 years, and he's been faithful to me all these years. Why would I deny him now? And they, they said to him, uh, hey, if you don't deny him, we're going to throw you the beasts. He says, bring the beasts. And they, they bring him. I, I, I love this. I just I love when people are defiant in the, in the way, but he he puts him in the arena and he says, we want you to say death to all the atheists. Now, what they were saying is they want him to say basically death to all the Christians because they considered Christians atheists because they were worshiped all the gods. But he had no problem in saying death to the atheists because he was like, that's not who the Christians are. And then they said they'd burn him. And he said, well, look, I had this I had this vision that I'd be burned, so I'm fine. Bring on the fire. And so the, according to the accounts of what happened, they... They surround him with wood and they lit it on fire to, to burn him. And then a wind came through and the fire didn't even touch him. So then they uh, used other means to kill him instead. But that was, he was one of the elders there at Smyrna. And he was killed. And so we, we see that this persecution becomes intense to the point that, that we see executions going on in Smyrna for Christians. So... Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, because that was coming, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Or maybe your, your scripture says, the crown of life. Now, there's two different crowns in Greek. There's the diadem, which would, were given to kings and rulers. And there's a second, this is Stephanos, which is the crown mentioned here. And it was a wreath given to someone who won a, a race in a, an athletic uh, race. <laughs> and uh, it was also given to generals. When they came home victorious in battle, they would put the Stephanos, this, this crown, the victor's crown. And Jesus saying, I will give you the victor's crown. Now the, the, common, the crown was a common metaphor in Smyrna. In fact, um, the 20% of the local inscriptions uncovered by archaeology contain a wreath this wreath of, of victory there. So, so Jesus is, is using something that's very similar, very, very familiar with them. And he's saying, look, I will give you the crown of life as the victor. So if you die, you will have eternal life and you will receive the victor's crown. And then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We just talked about how uh, Revelation is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing to those that hear the Word. So we, we should read it and be challenged by it and listen carefully. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at the second death. So he says, first, the one who is victorious will receive the crown of life. Second, the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. He doesn't promise to protect them from the first death. but And in fact, he, he, he says, some of you are going to experience that. But you'll be protected from the second death. The second death is the, is the judgment awaiting those who do not follow Jesus. So they'll receive the crown of life, eternal life, and spared from eternal punishment.
And we're reading this text, I think there's three applications that just kind of leap off the pages. First, God doesn't promise to deliver us out of tough circumstances. Notice what Jesus doesn't say in this letter to the church of Smyrna. He doesn't say, look, I know you're poor, but don't worry. I'm going I'm to make you rich. You know, we hear the, the, the preachers on TV. God wants you to be happy, healthy, and, 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 and wealthy. Jesus doesn't say to Smyrna, look, I know you're poor, but I'm going I'm to make you financially rich here on this earth. No, he says, no, even though you're poor, you're already rich. Jesus doesn't say, I know others are slandering you, but don't worry, I'm going to increase your reputation. Jesus doesn't say, I know that they're threatening you with imprisonment, torture, and death, but don't worry, I'll help them see the flaws in their thinking, and I'll rescue you from those consequences. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. Be faithful. I'm going to give you eternal rewards, the victor's crown. You won't be hurt by the second death, and you are already rich. Jesus never promised us in this life that we won't experience hardship. One one, uh, pastor I was listening to this week said it, put it this way. uh, Pain has a tendency to either make us bitter or better. Bitter or better. When we experience pain, if we we deny God and, and blame God and get mad at God, we tend to get bitter. But if we see that God can work in the midst of the pain and the work of the hardship, that often causes us to deepen our relationship with Jesus. Pain can make us bitter or make us better. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And He shouts to us in our pain. See, God has a unique way in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, of molding and shaping us to be more like Him, of meeting us in the mess, in the hardship. I think it's really important to take note that there are only two churches of these seven churches that don't that don't have any times where jesus says this is what you're doing wrong but rather jesus only praises them and both of those churches were going through tremendous hardship when you look around and see where the church is thriving in the world many of the places it's where the christians have tremendous persecution it's often easy for us to as we're experiencing financial and physical blessing to rather than be thankful to just take it for granted. So God doesn't promise to deliver us, up, us out of tough circumstances. And we also need to be prepared for persecution as believers. And Matthew 20, 10, 22, Jesus said, You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In 1 Peter 4, Do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of God and of God, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you if you suffer, you should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. In America, uh, one commentator put it this way: We have minor league suffering. 
You have major league suffering and minor league. And because around the world, uh, depending on the estimates you, you look at, um, there's around 10,000, 7,000 to 10,000 Christians that are martyred for their faith every year. And you look at places, what stuff that's happening in Afghanistan right now, uh, some of the things happening in some of the countries in, in Africa, and to, to follow Jesus means to have your, your livelihood threatened, um, have your life threatened. And as, as Christians in America, we don't really experience those things. And, and many of us lament where our culture is headed and worry that the days are ahead where we may face major league persecution, hardship, difficulties. So as we prepare for what might be down the road, I think, what can we do as Christians? And I think the best way to think about that is, are you being faithful in what God has called you to do right now? Maybe you're not experiencing persecution right now, but are you being faithful in what God has called you to do? And you ask yourself, how can I be faithful right now and demonstrate Christ to others? So, God doesn't promise to deliver us out of tough situations. We need to be prepared for persecution. And three, true riches are not temporary. In a few weeks, we'll be looking at the church in Laodicea. And again, they were tremendously financially rich, but Jesus said they were poor. Here, Smyrna is destitute in poverty. And Jesus says, you are rich. In Matthew 6, Jesus put it this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Is it in your stuff here? Or is it on eternal things? So how do we respond respond to those three applications in our daily lives? What should knowing those three things, that God doesn't promise to deliver us out of tough circumstances, that we need to be prepared for persecution, and that true riches are temporary, what should they cause us to do? One, I think we need to look at life through an eternal lens. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew if he died for his faith, and he eventually did, that it would be to his gain because of the eternal rewards that were stored up for him in heaven. And then Jesus said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. We're called to daily take up our cross, and follow Christ. And one last thing, just not really in my notes, but this. If right now you're in the midst of hardship and difficulty and you're walking through a season of life that's just really hard, just remember this one thing. Jesus knows. He knows. He walks with the churches. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be unfairly slandered. He knows what it's like to be rejected, to be betrayed. And he experienced death himself, dying on the cross for us. He's not a distant God that doesn't know what we're going through. He is near. And he loves us. And he says, whatever you're going through, be faithful. Don't be afraid. 
I'm with you. And you have eternity of rewards to look forward to. May you walk in that truth this week. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, some are going through difficult seasons, hard times. In those seasons, it can be so easy to be completely overwhelmed by the world around them. Maybe some are going through financial hardships, much like those in the church in Smyrna. They don't know where they're going to be able to afford the next meal, how, how you're going to provide. Maybe some are experiencing hardships of slander. Lord, we thank you for these letters to these seven churches. And Lord, help us to not be afraid, to know that the future is in your hands, that you are the first and the last, that you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, help us to be faithful in what you've called us to do. Help us to walk with you each and every day. Take up our cross and follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.